0: This is our fourth reading today in our Lenten reading series from John chapter 4. It's quite long, so anyone who needs to sit down during it, that's fine. Familiar story for us, the woman at the well. So listen carefully to God's word. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting. Beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. A woman came from Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where will you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I give him will spring up in him a spring of water welling to eternal life the woman said to him sir give me this water so that I shall not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water jesus said to her go call your husband and come here the woman answered him i i have no husband Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sorry, perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming down. Meanwhile the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples said to one another, has someone else brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are already white for harvest. And already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor.
1: Thanks, Allison, for reading that lengthy story. It's worth it to hear the whole story, and you'll see why as we talk about it. Um, Let's just pray and jump right in. Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of us, your servants purify our disordered affections, that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So I want you to imagine that you're driving a very small boat. Maybe you're over here in Beatty Lake, you know, pond, the Beatty Pond over here. It's a perfectly still day. You have a tiny little, maybe 15-foot boat. Maybe you have one of those little outboard motors behind you, and you're trying to steer from the middle of the lake to the shore. And you just can go in a nice, easy, straight line. Now I want you to take that same boat. I want you to put it in the middle of the ocean, in the wind, in the waves, in the birds, in the sharks, in the currents. And the underwater landscapes. Have you ever tried to drive a boat in the middle of the ocean? A little raft, just bigger than your yourself, a little motor? You can imagine how hard it would be to go in a straight line. It's hard to drive a big ship in a straight line in the ocean, but in in our, in a little boat, it'd be incredibly difficult to go in a specific straight line across the ocean. And there's one thing that you have to do constantly every moment that you're driving your boat across the ocean, and that's you have to turn, because you keep having to turn back to the direction that you want to go. This is the picture that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about what it's like for our hearts to follow Christ. Your heart is like a boat in the middle of the ocean, and you're trying to head in a specific direction and the currents, and the waves, and the wind, and, and all of the things, the vast complex reality that is you as a human, that is the world, that God made, means that there's this one thing that you have to do repeatedly, and that's continue to turn your heart back to the direction that you're trying to go. We can aim at the horizon that is Jesus with our hearts, and yet the things of our life, the internal reality, the complex internal reality of our lives and our hearts, is going to continually blow us off course and require constant course correction. This is why throughout the history of the church, Christians have talked about faith not as a specific thing, not as a place, but as a journey. That faith is this progression, this journey. There's this author that I've been reading, and he said this thing. I read it a few months ago, and it's just been kind of percolating in my mind for a long time. He says, faith is not clinging to a shrine, but an endless pilgrimage of the heart. This ongoing pilgrimage across the ocean of our inner life and our inner world. This is why books like Pilgrim's Progress ring true with our own experience of Christianity. It's why Christians throughout the centuries have encouraged taking literal physical pilgrimages from one place to another as a way to symbolically and bodily embrace this reality that in our hearts we're on a journey towards God. And while faith and love is the fuel of this journey that our hearts are on, the main action that we need to take is turning. And the Bible uses the word repent for this action. The word repent in the Old Testament occurs, or the underlying Hebrew word, occurs 436 times. And it's literally just the word meaning to turn. And in many cases it means to turn away, like Jeremiah 18 Eight says, if this nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, repents from, turns from. But then very, very often, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, it also means to turn towards. In Joel 2 verse 12, it says, yet even now declares the Lord, return them with all your heart. Return, turn your hearts towards God with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return Repent, turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. When we come to Christ, our initial action is kind of deciding the heading. We're going to head towards Christ, and then every day after that becomes an action of turning and returning back to this heading, this direction that we're going. That repenting to follow Jesus initially, our conversion, is not the end, but the beginning of our journey in following Christ. Martin Luther, in the very first of his 95 Theses, said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's this daily act of resetting, returning, (laughs) turning towards the horizon that is Christ. Not as this way of dwelling on our wrong, of nasal gazing, g- g- gazing, of self-deprecating or self-loathing, but this idea of turning towards Jesus constantly. Right? There's different ways to take a journey. You might get on a train, and on a train, you just push go, and then you sit back in your cabin, and the train just goes where it's headed. And That's not the way that our faith journeys work. The faith journey works a lot more like being in the middle of an ocean in a small boat, having to continually turn back to the right heading. So when we talk about Lent as a season of repentance, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a a season of of recalibrating, of re-aiming our hearts back at the direction into which we want to go, accounting for the drift that happens over the course of our hours and days and months and years. One author says, we must go through a process of awakening, weeping and recalibrating in order to increase our capacity to live more fully. Now today's story, The Woman at the Well, it's, it's one biblical example of what it looks like to turn towards Jesus. It's not a prescription for us. This is just a story about a woman meeting with Jesus, but there's so much that we can glean from from this story, and I want to call your attention just to three things that happen here. This story is long. Allison read a large portion of it. There, I've heard so many different sto- sermons and teachings and readings on this story. It's so multifaceted. So all I'm, tra- all I'm trying to do here is, is highlight three things happening that I think are important and necessary for our lives of faith, and our life of repentance, that can become sort of a barometer or a thermometer, taking your spiritual temperature, as it were. So let's look at this story and see three, three things that ought to be occurring in deepening measure in our lives of repentance and following Christ. In verse 7, the story starts like this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria John clarifies Jews don't have dealings with, Samari- with Samaritans, and Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now in this context, living water tended to mean like running water, like a creek or an ocean or something that's not still. There's still water in the bottom of that well, and so when he says living water, she's thinking, well, where are you going to get this river from? I don't see a river here. This is the well where we get Water. And they go back and forth a few times, and eventually we get down to this question the woman asks him and says, "'Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water.'" And what I just want you to notice here is that while the woman and Jesus are both using the word water, they're talking about different things. You see that? (laughs) They're talking about different things. This is the same thing that happened in last week's text, the story of Nicodemus. Jesus says, you must be born again, and Nicodemus is like, born again? How can a man be born again when he is old? Using the same words, but talking about different things. You see, when Jesus talks, he's talking about deeper realities. When he talks about water, he's not just talking about water. For Jesus, nothing is just anything. (laughs) There's always something more. I was thinking about this uh, in sort of a, a comical way when I tell my kids that we're going to go have a talk. We're going to talk, but it means something different, right? When I tell my kids that mommy and I are going to go to bed now, I mean something much more than that. Yes, you understand. He who has ears, let him hear. This is. Words mean things, but there's deeper realities at hand. There's more deeper, greater things happening. And the very first thing that is involved in all acts of repentance is this deepening awareness of the deeper realities that exist around us. This is required if we're going to be following Jesus. If we want to steer towards Christ, we can't just look on the surface of the water. We have to look underneath the water. We have to understand the currents that are happening. And the problem is that we love to live on the surface— we like to evaluate, react, respond to things on the surface. In the boat metaphor, this is the wind and the rain and the waves and the sharks jumping out. We, we focus on what's up here on the surface of things. And we don't look below the surface. I was reading an article a couple weeks ago about a, a man who was reflecting on his, on his divorce. And the title of the article was, I should have refilled the toilet paper. And the whole article is about him saying that him not refilling the toilet paper caused his divorce. And he was looking back and seeing that refilling the toilet paper was something much more than refilling the toilet paper. There's something more, deeper, greater behind that. There's something real going on in there, a posture of the heart, a reality of the world that's happening. And when we look around in our relationships and our politics, and in our neighborhoods, and in our churches, we tend to live up on the top of the world. People come in, you you go to a new church, and you evaluate the songs, and you evaluate the doctrinal statement, and you evaluate how the worship leader sings, or how the preacher preaches. we're, We're so simplistic about things sometimes. We look just on the surface. And what we see Jesus doing with the woman is inviting her to come and understand that there's something deeper and greater happening. And this is the invitation to repentance, to this ever-expanding awareness of deeper realities, the underneath the water, right, the currents, the mountains, the valleys, the things happening below the surface. In our world, in relationships, in, in my heart, right, your heart is a complex, multifaceted, spiritual, and dynamic place. The world is a multifaceted, complex, spiritual, dynamic place. Bodily experiences that you have are not just bodily experiences. They mean something. They're connected to deeper realities. There's some books and things that have helped me think through this Malcolm Gladwell's book called Blink. I remember the first time that I read this book. I don't know if you've heard of Malcolm Gladwell or his book Blink, but there's, uh, he opens the book with this story of an art critic who came and They were trying to decide whether a certain painting was a forgery, and they brought in this art critic, and he looked at it, and within one second he was able to tell that it was a forgery. And he didn't even, he couldn't even tell you why, but there's things going on deeper in his ability to discern reality that he knew it was fake, simply by being someone who knew what art was supposed to look like, and he couldn't even tell that. There's deeper realities happening in our lives. This is not to say we need to run, find conspiracies. This is not a secret. There's no codes here. These things are available to everyone, but we have to stop and pay attention and be aware of them. I was sitting in the airport last week in Orlando. Worst airport in the country. Never go to Orlando. Um, and just sitting there for, I was stuck there for five hours, so that's part of my angst here. And watching people walk by. You have done this? You know people watching in the airport. But you just think of the sheer complexity of every single person's heart that walks past you in the airport for hours. In one airport, in one city, in one corner of the globe the sheer complexity of what's happening in the world, and the invitation, the beginning of repentance is to stop and simply pay attention to what's happening around us, to notice the full spectrum of life, to become aware of what is actually happening. (laughs) I found myself, Chris and I, asking each other this, this question. What is actually happening here? We know what's happening up here, but what is actually happening? Do you ask that question? Do you know what's really going on at deeper levels of reality in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls? This requires a lot of humility because we don't know the answers to these questions. This is why we like to stay up on the surface. But in this text, I see Jesus inviting us, the same thing with Nicodemus, the same thing with the disciples in the second half of this passage. They're just missing the deeper realities, and Jesus is saying, hey, come and engage with me at a deeper level, and this is where all repentance starts. But it moves into another category, and this is what happens next in verse 16. Jesus says this thing to her. He says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. What's really interesting is what she said was true, but it was posturing. She was using the truth to hide something deeper about herself. Right? It's very true she has no husband, but that's not really what's going on in her life, is it? She's saying something true to hide a deeper reality, and this is the word posturing, behavior or language intended to impress or mislead, hiding who she really is, and Jesus sees right through that to the reality of of who she is in her heart. And this is the second thing that happens in repentance. We have this deepening awareness of reality, but we move into a deepening knowledge of ourselves. That interaction with Jesus becomes a pathway to greater self-knowledge. You see this later in the text when she says she goes home to the to the people in the town, and the woman left her water jar and went away, in verse 28, and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Which is not true. He didn't tell her all that she ever did, but she receives that indication as a deeper pathway to understanding what's really going on. She recognizes that there's all kinds of more things happening and that this man sees through her. It's a moment and a pathway of self revelation, and the reality for you, in you, your life, the reality in my life is that I'm an expert at posturing. I said this on Ash Wednesday. An author named Rich Plass says, we are experts at creating an image, but novices at recognizing and repenting of the image we have created. What begins as an effort to impress you becomes something I believe about myself over time. And I begin operating in what a lot of psychologists and counselors call the false self. That now I'm operating out of a place that's not real and not true, that's inconsistent with reality, and I ignore and repress and avoid and dress up the parts of me that I don't want to look at or think about. This is the reality that sin is not about doing bad things, but it's about turning away ourselves from God deep in the recesses of our heart, the currents, if you will, in the boat metaphor of our hearts, the propensities of our heart, our appetites, the way we relate in relationships. And says, we are caught in patterns of mistrust with God and others. Our situation is far more desperate than dealing with a few sins. Our state of being spawns deceitful and desperate strategies that corrupt our relationships in ways we find it hard to even recognize. This is where we're at. Our, we don't know ourselves very well. We're affected by family patterns and injuries and, and then Plath says this, if we are unaware of what is going on in our souls, we will continue our patterns of relating. And here's how this relates to repentance, because without self-knowledge, there can be no Christian formation. we're ignorant of ourselves, if we're ignorant of the parts of us that need to be turned back to God, how are we going to turn those parts of us towards Him? The first time I bought a house, I was ignorant of everything. And so I think the first time I changed the filter in my HVAC unit was after like 12 months. You should have seen it. It was disgusting. But I had no idea. I didn't know that part of my house needed to be changed. I didn't know that part needed to be turned towards the light. And this is the consistent testimony of the church to us. Teresa of Avila, a great uh, medieval mystic, said, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. Augustine said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? See, there's a great danger in not understanding or knowing ourselves. And Henry Nouwen says, the danger is of living our whole life as one long defense against the reality of our condition, one restless effort to convince ourselves of our virtuousness. There's danger in not knowing ourselves. You see, following Jesus is not a yes or no question. Following Jesus is a slow journey of turning our entire selves towards him. When I wash dishes, I turn the whole dish. It's really hard to get every part of the dish under the water to get it clean. That's the journey of faith, bringing our whole selves to God. And so repentance, this life of growth of faith, requires a deepening understanding of ourselves so that we can bring those parts to God, so that we can turn those parts back towards Jesus. This is even—I read the first couple chapters or sections in John Calvin's Institutes this week, and the very first sentence in his Institutes says that, There's only two kinds of knowledge, knowledge of God and knowledge of self, and it's really hard to know where one begins and the other one ends. They're both necessary. The reality is to encounter Jesus, you have to encounter yourself. And the woman at the well, she brings a lot of very obvious flaws to the table. But for you and I, right, the good people, we actually have to dig deep into our hearts because we're really good at looking good on the outside so I want to invite you to consider what would you find? How well do you know yourself? It's really more of a terrifying question than it sounds like. Are you allowing Jesus to show you all that you ever did? What are the patterns and currents of sins that are buried in that, the deep recesses of our hearts, of your heart? It's not just actions to stop, but patterns to break? Where do you have ignorance that needs knowledge? Where do you have injuries from others, from your families, that need to be healed? Are you bringing those to Jesus? Where do you have idolatries that need to be confronted with the kingship of Jesus in your heart? I have a whole section of notes that I'm not going to do that's examples of this, but I would love to talk to you about this. Self-knowledge is something we avoid like the plague, but it's essential to being transformed by Jesus. And the thing is that this deepening awareness of reality that we pursue that leads to a deepening knowledge of ourselves are both prerequisites to this final thing Maybe you call them co-requisites. And this is the woman saying, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She has a dramatic encounter with Jesus, and this is what the, the life of faith should look like. A deepening awareness of reality, a deepening knowledge of ourselves, and then a daily deepening of encounter with Jesus which is what happens here. It's beautiful, the end, and this is why I wanted Allison to read all the way to the end of this story. The townspeople, they come back to her and they say this. They say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The rest of the townspeople, they don't just believe secondhand. They go to the source and they themselves encounter Jesus as well. It's a progression of s- from hearing and seeing to experiencing, a deepening of encounter with Jesus. And this is the third thing. This is the third thing I want you to see, is that the life of faith, the life of repentance, leads to continually deepening encounters with Jesus. Sometimes we tell our story about when we met Jesus as if it was a one-time thing. It's like if I told you the story of my marriage and the only thing I ever told you was the very first day I met my wife. It's not a very compelling story. It's not a very compelling relationship but an ongoing, deepening encounter of Jesus. And this is what Christianity is about. This is what faith is about. True repentance always leads to personal encounter with Christ and transformation in our hearts. I wonder if you know this. Not up here. (laughs) Do you know it in here? I have found That for much of my Christian life, I had no idea that encounter with Jesus was actually possible or desirable or necessary or central to what it means to be a Christian. I thought Christianity was about these practices or about these beliefs, or about avoiding these things or not doing this. This is the life of faith, is to encounter the person of Jesus in a deepening way each day. Do you know this? Does this happen to you? Are you seeking this? turning every part of ourselves to Jesus. The most exhilarating thing in the world is encounter with the living God. So I just want to invite you this week over the next season, these seasons as we lead up to Easter, to pay attention to these things. I'm going to sound, continue to sound like a broken record here talking about silence and solitude, but solitude is not just the absence of people. (laughs) Solitude is intentional time spent with God. It's going to the secret place in your heart and meeting God there. How much is that a regular part of your life? This is the, this is the imitation The woman at the well got to sit across the well and look at Jesus. (laughs) We don't get to do that, but we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, but we're not going to be able to listen to him unless we stop and pay attention to what he's saying to us. That's solitude. Silence is not just the absence of noise. A lot of us can have that. I can go in my office and close the door and I soundproofed my door, so it's like somewhat quieter with my kids screaming out there can find some level of silence. Maybe you have some level of absence of noise in your day. In your car you close the doors and it's silent. Just because it's silence doesn't mean you have silence. Silence is when you sit and actually expect God to speak to you. Do you do this? Do you know this? So these are three things I want to encourage. These are the three things from this text to deepen your awareness of reality. Just sit and pay attention. When you came into church today, what did you see here? What is happening in this room? Who is here? What do you want when you come in this room? What do I want? Do we pay attention to what's going on beyond the surface things? Spend a minute this week. Just sit and pay attention to what's going on around you. Ask God to help you discern what is actually going on. Secondly, pay attention to yourself. This is now, uh, as we get further into the world, there's more and more science that's affirming this, the spirituality of sitting still and paying attention to your body. Sitting still and paying attention to your breathing actually has scientific effects on your body. Do you pay attention to yourself? Do you know what you're feeling? I'm an intellectually oriented person, so for most of my life, I had no idea. See, I'll joke about an Enneagram 5. If you ask them what they're feeling, they'll tell you what they're thinking. Because they don't know what they're feeling. Many of us don't pay attention to what we're feeling. Do you ask, why? Why did you speak that harsh word to your kid this morning? Why were you impatient with the driver on the way to church? What is the Holy Spirit calling your attention to in your soul? Don't ignore pain, frustration, anger, fear. Ask questions of God. And third, seek to encounter Jesus. How is Jesus giving you comfort? Where do you see him in your heart? Where do you see him in your world? Where do you hear him speaking? Paying attention, deepening our awareness of reality, deepening our knowledge of ourself, and deepening our encounter with God, the life of repentance and faith. I'll just end with Romans chapter 5. I love this verse. Paul writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Our hope doesn't disappoint because we know the right things. Our hope doesn't disappoint because we practice the right things. Our hope doesn't disappoint because we do the right things or feel the right things, but because God himself has been poured into our hearts. That's the reality of encounter with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us in this room. Thank you for this story and the call to turn our hearts towards you. And I pray for myself. and I pray for each person in this room who feels the call of your spirit that we would respond by understanding the deeper realities around us. That we would receive the knowledge you want to give us about ourselves so that we can turn those things to you and find peace and transformation and growth and health. May we encounter you in this moment, at your table, and in our daily lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In the song of response, you just be seated. And let us teach you this new tune to an old hymn.